Support for Prop G comes from BetterHelp. It's not always easy to figure out what matters most. I know for me, my top priorities are, uh, finally, uh, relationships. Uh, I want relevance, um, and I want to be... I want to be healthy. I want to be mentally and uh, physically fit. BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you discover what really matters to you and prioritize it so you can spend your time on things that really make you happy. It's easy and affordable with online sessions designed to fit into your busy schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ProfG today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ProfG. Support for Prop G comes from SoFi Invest. Alternative investments are now available on SoFi. Unlock the potential to build and protect your wealth with alternatives, including real estate, venture capital, pre-IPO unicorns, and more at SoFi.com slash Prop G. Active investing products offered through SoFi Securities LLC member FINRA SIPC. Alternative funds have unique risks, including the risk of loss, may charge high fees, can be illiquid, and may not be suitable for all investors. Prior to investing in any fund, carefully consider the investment objectives, risk, charges, expenses, and important information contained in a fund's prospectus. This week's number, 99. That's the percentage of the American population that lives in a county with at least one Mexican restaurant. True story, I like to masturbate fully naked. If you don't like it, go to another Chipotle. Welcome to Prof G Markets. Today, we're discussing Elon's Tesla stake, bank earnings, and a firing on TikTok. True story, Ed. I have a lifetime. I used to talk about Chipotle a lot, which I absolutely love. And they sent me a lifetime uh, Chipotle. I can walk into any Chipotle with this card, which I've since lost, and order a meal, and it's free. My kids, it's like literally my kids are totally blown away and think my job and career has merit now. So you got super rich, and they decided to give you more stuff for free. That's, that's an awesome deal. I think it's important that, that wealthy people get free <laughs> stuff. I just think it makes sense. It makes it sense. Goes. Yeah. By the way, just on the on the on your opening joke, I got two comments last week. One was from my friend's mom, who was like, that last week's joke was totally inappropriate. And then the other, this other dude came up to me, at the gym, he's like, "Oh, are you at else?" I'm like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Oh yeah, I I love the podcast. I was I was listening to it this morning, um, and I'm trying to get my girl into it, my girlfriend into it. Um, but we listened to the first first five seconds, and Scott started talking about how his wife fucks him in the ass with his with her massive cock, so she doesn't really like it. Apparently, girls don't really like the um, the anal. What about women, Ed? What about women? Women. Yeah. 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 Anyways, get to the news, you, 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 you. <laughs> Anyways, what are we discussing? Let's start with our weekly review of Market Vitals. The dollar rose, Bitcoin dropped, and the yield on 10-year treasuries climbed. Shifting to the headlines. A federal judge blocked JetBlue's $3.8 billion deal to buy Spirit Airlines, saying a merger would restrict competition and lead to higher fares. Spirit stock cut in half after the decision on Tuesday. Uber is shutting down alcohol delivery app Drizzly after acquiring it for $1.1 billion three years ago. Uber intends to prioritize the core Uber Eats strategy, helping customers get anything from groceries to alcohol on one single app. U.S. Bitcoin ETFs pulled in $871 million in the first three days of trading. 
Investors turned to BlackRock and Fidelity for new crypto products as the higher-fee Grayscale fund saw outflows of more than $1.1 billion. For the first time ever, Apple surpassed Samsung as the world's largest smartphone manufacturer by units shipped. Apple now holds a 20.1% market share over Samsung's 19.4%. In terms of revenue, Apple dominates with a near 50% share of the entire market. And finally, chip design software maker Synopsys plans to acquire Ansys in a $35 billion deal. That would be the biggest acquisition in the tech sector since chipmaker Broadcom took over VMware last November. After the news, Synopsys shares were up 3.8% and Ansys shares were down 4.8%. Where do you want to start? Spirit and JetBlue. Um, definitely the Biden administration is much more kind of antitrust friendly or or merger unfriendly, if you will. The thing that struck me about this was the Spirit Airlines on announcement that the deal wasn't going through, it dropped, it got cut in half. Now that it's been blocked, JetBlue owes Spirit $470 million breakup fee. So it's weird, it got cut in half, despite the fact it's getting almost a half a billion dollars. A year ago, when it was a bidding war, I don't know if you remember, it was a bidding war between Frontier and JetBlue. The Spirit CEO was very vocal saying to the shareholders, don't vote for JetBlue. It's unlawful and it won't be approved because JetBlue is too big. And he was trying to drum up support for the Frontier acquisition because, yes, it was a smaller offer, but it was more likely to go through. It didn't get enough support from the shareholders. So the Frontier deal falls through. And then as soon as that happens, Spirit CEO turns around and he says, we've reached an agreement with JetBlue. We're really excited about it. And then he spends the next year explaining why the deal is lawful and why it would promote competition. So it's like a complete 180 from what he was originally saying. And I think the way he's handled this illustrates the truth of this situation, which is the deal was never going to go through. And the fact that JetBlue's CEO thought that it might demonstrates, in my view, probably some incompetency, because now they have to pay this $400 million fee to Spirit shareholders. They also have to pay a $70 million fee to Spirit, the company. And they look really stupid now. And then, surprise, surprise, the JetBlue CEO is now stepping down. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hate the airline industry for the most part. The bailouts, you know, the five CEOs, the biggest airlines, or the four CEOs collectively paid themselves like $150 million the year before COVID and then went hat in hand. Such a joke. Then went hat in yeah. hand to the government during COVID saying, we're all in this together. They're just so full of shit. I, it's just a very difficult business. It's labor intensive, it's capital intensive. It's subject to all sorts of exogenous impacts. So it's, it's weather or, I mean, it just, or consumer trends or a pandemic. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett famously said, if he had a time machine, you'd wanna go back and kill the Wright brothers. That so the airline industry has just been terrible terrible for investors. Drizzly, this one was weird to me because I, I couldn't discern whether this is a, a billion dollar acquisition that didn't work and they're just calling it a day or if they're just getting rid of the brand, you know, it's just been rolled up to the larger food offering. Do you have any sense for what's going on here? Basically, the, I mean, the story Uber is telling that this has kind of been the plan and that their, their long-term plan is that they just want to consolidate all delivery into one app and that app is going to be Uber Eats. And then they've also made statements about why it's actually not a big deal, which honestly, I believe. For example, they're like, alcohol sales doubled on Uber Eats last year. Also, the majority of Drizzly users already have Uber accounts. Also, they still keep all the back-end tech, like they have this 
proprietary ID technology that lets retailers identify and verify the age of their customers. And that's something that Drizzly designed and then Uber scooped up when they acquired them. This feels to me like another example of the corporate communications department not doing a very good job. And that is this came off as a foul ball. It came off as Uber was, you know, calling uncle on a terrible billion dollar investment when it might have been just brand architecture move. And then uh, Apple selling more smartphones than Samsung. Most people would credit Apple with a lot of sort of seminal or iconic business strategy moves. Uh, but I think the one that doesn't get enough attention was in 2001, Steve Jobs decided to take money out of pre-purchase broadcast advertising, and they opened their first store in Tyson's Corner at the, you know, when, if you think about it, you go back and what's so visionary about this, is this was a time when Amazon was coming online and the general consensus was that stores were just gonna go away and we're gonna no longer play a role, that we were all gonna be ordering everything online. And what I think Jobs recognized was that branding and brand is the core asset of Apple. They get above market margins. Just real quick, I was on the board of Gateway Computer. I don't know if you know that, Ed. Uh, but at that time, we sold more computers. We sold three times as many computers as Apple, but our margins, get this, our gross margins were like 6%, and Apple's margins were 30%. People pay so much for that self-expressive benefit brand Apple. So the brand really is key. And there's kind of three components to branding, pre-purchase advertising, loosely speaking, uh, purchase, distribution, and then post-purchase loyalty programs, warranty, et cetera. And what Jobs recognized was that the sort of pre-purchase branding, specifically television advertising or print, that sword was getting duller and duller. So 40 years ago, an ad on the Academy Awards cost a fifth as much, but reached five times as many people or offered 25 times the ROI, or put another way, the ROI has gone down 96% over the last four decades. And he recognized this and said, well, people still have to buy shit. So if you looked, if you really examine the channel and hardware, the distribution channel was really desperate. If you ever wanted to fix a computer or buy a computer, you went into like Egghead Software or CompUSA or Circuit City, and then they opened these temples to the brand. And it has, I think it has been the difference between Apple becoming the strongest brand in the world and Samsung losing share and just not offering the same or not being able to offer the same type of margins in their product. And I have... I consulted to the CMOs of both Nike and Samsung, and my message 15 years ago was the same to both. They need to get greater control of their distribution in order to maintain the type of brand equity and margins they become used to. One listened, the other did not. Samsung actually opened a store, you wouldn't even call it a store because they weren't selling anything in the meatpacking district, and it just felt stale. There was no life to it. It felt like a museum. No one went, you know, you went once and that was it. And the Apple stores are just, they're just incredible. So the the downstream or the verticalization of Apple, the huge investment, uh, kind of swimming upstream or being a contrarian, zigging when everyone was zagging, it ended up being, in my, in my view, one of the kind of the pillars of it becoming the most valuable company in the world. The craziest part is that the iPhone is still seen and priced as this luxury product. And as you talk about and teach about, like the number one rule of luxury is limited supply. Like that's what allows Hermes to price a bag at 10,000 because you walk in and you're not allowed to, you're not able to get a bag. This almost defies economics because this, that's not the case with the iPhone. It's now the most popular smartphone in the world. And yet it's still 
priced at $1,000 per phone. It's still the most expensive. It's still this aspirational brand. Well, just as the idea of a virgin giving birth to the Son of God kind of defies the natural order or suspends all rational belief, what Apple has pulled off is kind of suspends the natural order. In the world of marketing, it just, it, it, it defies gravity. And it's pulled off what, as far as I know, no other brand has pulled off before. And then let's talk about Synopsys to acquire Ansys. What a a lot of sisses in here. So Synopsys, I didn't know this, is the largest maker of software used in chip design. The stocks that have really outperformed over the last decade, maybe more than that, last 20 years, kind of have well, one thing in common, at least the majority of them, and that is they're an asset light model. And to a certain extent, you know, you don't want to own apartments. You want to build a layer of software on top of them so people can rent them out. You don't want to own a car, you wanna uh, create a level or a thick layer of innovation or software on top of it such that you can rent them out to other people. And obviously that's Uber. But these asset light models have really dominated. The most valuable company I would argue in AI right now, NVIDIA, they design and then they rent out other people's manufacturing. And this this is, this is interesting. I don't know much about it. Do you know anything about this deal? Well, biggest in the tech sector ever if it goes through. For, to me, the big reminder is like, boring is sexy. Because, you know, I'd, full transparency, I'd never heard of Ansys before this. And maybe I'm just dumb, but I also read business news for a living. I think both of those things are true. I think, I think those <laughs> things can exist at the same time, Ed. <laughs> Great. Great. Well, Doing your job. Well, hold on. I was t saying something, which is boring is sexy. Um, so here's what I do know about Ansys now. They make engineering simulation software. Basically, they'll go to an airplane maker and they'll say, instead of physically testing your airplane, we'll just simulate a bunch of real-world scenarios that you don't have to spend all this time and money building and crashing planes. And that's literally all they do. And so I guess the lesson for me here is like, if you can build a product that no one else is building, whether that's because your product is super complex and you need to hire a bunch of crazy smart engineers and get them out of like academic institutions, which is what Ansys has done, or maybe just because other people don't really care about the problem that you're solving because people don't know about it. But if you can do something that is extremely niche that no one else is building, you're going to make a shit ton of money. And it doesn't matter if you're a household name or not. It's being sold for $35 billion, which is almost double what Adobe was going to pay for Figma. And based on the stock movements, the, the market believes this is going to go through. We'll be right back after the break with a look at Elon's Tesla stake. Support for Prop G comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now, demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash prop G. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement.
Support for our show comes from Sonos. Usually when we read ads for the show, I get a whole page of talking points they want me to hit. But get this, Sonos sends me their latest portable speaker, Move 2, and no script. They just want me to share with you what I honestly think of it. And after listening to the speaker, I get why Sonos is so confident that I'd have good things to say. It's fantastic. It's incredible that this kind of fidelity and acoustics and sound comes from such a little device. I mean, it really packs a punch. And also, I have been buying Sonos for 10 or 15 years now. I know the CEO. I know people uh, that work there. They're just good people and a nice company, and they make an outstanding product. The battery life of Move 2 is so good, giving up to 24 hours of playback. And because it's weather and drop resistant, you can bring it anywhere. Just think of all the places you could listen to this podcast. What a thrill. Seriously, you won't believe how good I sound on this speaker. Every stream counts, people. Come on, come on, invest in this relationship. To learn more about Move2 and other Sonos speakers, visit Sonos.com. That's S-O-N-O-S.com. Support for this show comes from Thorne. If you want to be in charge of your health, it starts with what you put in your body, from foods to supplements. I'm always trying to find the best options out there, which is why I'm excited to tell you about Thorne. Thorne takes a personalized, innovative, and scientific approach to health and wellness. They manufacture all their supplements in the U.S. using top-notch ingredients sourced globally. Plus, they team up with leading medical professionals to bring you highly effective nutritional supplements. And with thorough testing and a super clean manufacturing process, they've earned some of the highest certifications in the industry. I'm at an age where I'm thinking more and more about my health, and I want to, I don't know, I want to supplement, if you will, where I'm where I'm not as healthy as I could be, and I'm going to try out Thorn, and I will report back on uh, how it goes. I have a couple friends who use it, and they really like it. Whether it's their B-complex, creatine, or magnesium citrate, Thorn's got a wide array of supplements to help promote and maintain health goals. Give your body what it really needs with Thorn. Go to thorn.fit slash provg and use code provg for 10% off your first order. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot fit slash profg, code profg for 10% off your first order. Thorn dot fit slash profg, code profg. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're back with Profg Markets. Elon Musk wants more Tesla stock. In a series of posts on X, Musk wrote that he wants 25% voter control over the company, otherwise he'd take his AI and robotics ambitions elsewhere. Musk sold about $40 billion of his shares in 2022 to finance his purchase of Twitter. Still, he remains Tesla's largest shareholder with a 13% stake. Scott, Elon is basically pressuring the board to double his stock. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Yeah, this happens all the time, but in a much different format and much less aggressively. I have been on the board of several companies where the CEO stamps his or her feet over the compensation and threatens to leave. I even had one CEO kind of threaten that he would walk down the street with his team and start another company. And we came close to actually firing that guy. Oftentimes there's a bit of jockeying around compensation between the board and some implied or implicit threats, especially in private companies. It's really unusual in public companies. And what's so unusual about this is that if you take a step back and really think about what's going on here, Elon Musk is the wealthiest man in the world. How did he become the wealthiest man in the world? Mostly through his stake in Tesla. So the company that made him the wealthiest man in the world, he is saying to the board, 
if you don't pay me an additional $70 billion, which would be the value of the options they would need to award him to go to 25, I am going to take all of my ideas and start deploying them in a different entity that competes with Tesla, but I expect to still be around at Tesla. I mean, there's about five different things in that that most boards would fire the CEO for. I've never heard of anything. We've never just seen anything like that. And for him to start shitposting the board publicly and putting, you know, negotiating in public, I've never seen that before. Usually it's private. And at some point, if this were a, a normal company with normal directors, basically directors usually are what I call, refer to affectionately as FIPS, FIPs, formerly important people. And if some guy started threatening to take his ball and take it somewhere else, and we had already made this guy the richest person in the world, they might ask that person to leave, or they might just say, sorry, boss, we're not giving you more, you're already staked. And oftentimes, and I've been on boards with companies where the CEO wants more shares, uh, and this happened to me, what my, my boards have said to me is, you own so much of the company, Scott, that you're kind of fully staked. We don't feel a need to give you more, you're good. But this board is different. Uh, the compensation committee of the board, although I don't know if this board even pays attention to its committees. I mean, the problem is there's so many conflicts. They all want to be this guy's buddy and have a chance to invest in his other ventures. So he kind of controls the board. He also has brothers on the board, which is ground zero for poor corporate governance. It strikes me that anyone that goes on this board really has, you know, w there's only one requirement, and that is you do whatever the fuck you want. And uh, people on the other side would say, well, as long as he continues to create this sort of shareholder value, you know, he should kind of be able to push the board around. What do, what do you think about that? I mean, he's 10x the value of the company in the last five years. I don't care how powerful you are. At some point, there have to be guardrails. There has to be somebody in your life that says no. Otherwise, it's it sort of goes to what are the keys to negotiating? And there's really only two things you have to remember. The first is to not be emotional. Don't make it win-lose. Don't get angry. Just realize they might have different objectives than you. That's fine. And second is to always show a credible willingness to walk away. I've never done a deal. I've never sold a company or bought a company where at some point one party didn't walk away. Because until someone does, they just keep bumping and making the terms worse. When I was doing my deal to sell L2 to Gartner, they kept popping up and asking for more and more stuff or reducing the price. And then finally I said, I'm out. I you know, sent them a letter saying, we are, We've asked for you to release us from the exclusive here, we're done. And then that's when they came back and gave us what we needed and said, we're gonna close. At some point, somebody has to say no to this guy. Otherwise, I think it just gets worse. Well, let's, let's, I guess let's just go through the actual possible scenarios. So what Elon's actually asking for isn't necessarily 25% of all the shares. He just wants 25% of the voting power, of the control of the company. And one of the things that he suggested that he would be down for is a dual class shareholder structure. But then he also points it out, but I am also told it's impossible to do that after an IPO. And then he went on a rant complaining about how it's stupid that, that, that it's not possible. Now, I think what we should, what's worth mentioning is what, at least from a first glance view, there's not total certainty over whether it's impossible to switch back to a, a dual class structure because just when you look at history, Ford had an example where the shareholders voted on switching from dual class to single class. So there's a possibility, or we should at least take it with a grain of salt, his assertion that we cannot do this after the IPO. 
Then there's the other option, which is Tesla could, in theory, sell itself to a new co, which has a different shareholder structure. Um, and then there, there's the possibility of, you know, they just say no. But I think the most likely scenario would be what they did in 2018, where they said, we'll give you all of this money, all of this stock, but you have to hit certain performance metrics, and we're going to make those performance metrics absurd. And what he did in, in the past five years is he met all of those, and so he earned his $60 billion. So I feel like, I mean, what would you do if you're the board in this situation out of the options that you could take? I think what you're suggesting is probably where they end up, and that is they give him some crazy over-the-top options award that is has very aggressive hurdle rates and say, look, you can now be worth a half a trillion dollars and go buy, you know, go buy the BBC and, uh, you know, Russia today if you want, but we're going to put a big, big hurdles on it. Uh, I don't think a different class of stock is the way to go. But when you look at the margin compression here, when you look at how many people are coming for for Tesla, whether it's Hyundai or the Chinese manufacturer, I forget who it is. I, I just think this guy is a few, you know, bad quarters away from all of a sudden this board finding its backbone. The banks kicked off fourth quarter earnings season and JP Morgan once again reigned supreme. For 2023, the company had the most profitable year in banking history with net income of about $50 billion. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley's quarterly profit fell 32% compared to a year earlier. And alongside Goldman Sachs, it reported its lowest annual profit in four years. Over at Citigroup, things appeared even worse. The company reported a net loss of $1.8 billion, down from a $2.5 billion profit the previous year. And it also announced 20,000 job cuts. Scott, uh, mixed bag here. What do you make of these earnings? I mean, it's just amazing. Usually these banks kind of move in sympathy with each other. Uh, JP Morgan has you know, registered profits, the likes of which we've never seen before in the banking industry. And uh, I think it's it's better to be lucky than good, although they're both here. And that is, as interest rates have spiked, if, you, if interest rates are 2%, yeah, that means you're paying people you know, you're paying people 1% for their deposits and you're loaning it out at two and a quarter, that's a spread of 125 bips. When all of a sudden you can get 8% on a mortgage and you're paying people 5%, your spread is 300 bips. So for no real reason, your, you know, your margins or your gross margins are up 150%. So a lot of that is just the incredible earnings power or incremental margin they're getting on their deposits. In addition, because JP Morgan is so big and so bulletproof and so well-connected, when I think it was First Republic was going out of business, they got to pick it up. Basically, they got to pick up, I think, a quarter of a trillion dollars in deposits for free and then start earning their 200 bips. They picked up a massive amount of deposits just in time for the spread and the money they were making on those deposits to explode. So they have done you know, incredible. Um, their shares last year were up 27% which is really impressive when you consider that the NASDAQ bank index was down 5%. And then Goldman looks like uh, things are getting better there. I think M&A volume is picking up. They have a great wealth management business. Um, their asset management uh, business is much more consistent and the market likes that more. Their revenues increased 23% year on year in their asset management group. 
you know, they're executing and their profits increased 51% year on year, blowing away analyst expectations. Citigroup or Citi, I would imagine that Jane, Jane Fraser is not long for this world. A $2 billion loss in the face of other folks doing really well. And Morgan Stanley fell short of expectations, but um, they're still making money. Um, this was, I think this was probably a kitchen sink quarter, I would, I would say, and that is sometimes the CEO takes all the charges, discloses all the bad shit, takes the write down because it's his first, I think it was his first quarter as the new, I don't know if it was the first quarter, but he's got, he's in a, he's in a honeymoon period. So he wants, what he wants to do is kind of say, oh my God, I didn't realize how bad this was and blame the previous CEO and get it all out of the way. Ted Pick, you're talking, the, the new Morgan Stanley CEO. The new Morgan Stanley CEO. Yeah. And set it up, you know, take all the bad charges, et cetera, and set, her up, set it up for success. Yeah, I think the the kitchen sink point, it was almost like a kitchen sink for every bank this quarter. Because, I mean, there was no consistency in the profits. Like JP Morgan's quarterly profit was down 15%. Morgan Stanley down 32%. And then Citigroup, yeah, has this $2 billion net loss, which is just crazy. But they all had these non-recurring charges, as you say, the kitchen sink. Um, for example, the main one is that they all had to pay the FDIC fee because of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse. And as we know, if you're a big bank or what they call a systemically important bank, that's more than $5 billion in deposits, then you have an obligation to cover the depositors if another bank goes down which is what happened. So Citi paid one and a half billion, JP Morgan paid three billion, and then you put all the banks together and they all paid to the FDIC just this quarter, $10 billion. In the case of Citi, there were also some really like niche one-off charges. There's this one and a half billion dollar expense that Citi calls the Argentina-Russia transfer risk. And basically what it is is for one, Argentina has devalued its currency by 50%. We discussed that on a previous episode. They're talking about getting rid of the central bank. They have this new populist leader in charge. And then over in Russia, you've, they're fighting a war in Ukraine, and they're being led by a murderous autocrat, and the ruble is down around 30% in the past year. So basically, Citibank's concern is that they have all these assets in these two countries, and they might not be able to get the money out when they need it. So what they've decided to do is put aside $1.5 billion in case things get really bad, and it'll almost act, in my view, as like a rainy day fund. It's like an insurance fund. Now, the shitty thing for them is that that now shows up as an expense on the income statement. So if you were to just look at the bottom line here, you'd think Citi was fucked. I mean, $2 billion net loss versus a $2.5 billion profit last year. It's insane. But in reality, if you look at the top line, if you look at the, the revenue, things are actually fine. The, the quarterly revenue is a little down, but it's stable. The net interest income is up, as you say, because the interest rates have risen. And then their annual revenue is also up. So the big picture is actually pretty good. I think we often think that the bottom line, the profit, is the number that tells you the full story. But sometimes, in rare cases, that's actually not true. And in this case, the, the truer, more accurate number that illustrates what's really happening here is the top line. It's the revenue. And in each of the bank's case, it's generally fine. JP Morgan up 12%. They're, you know, crushing it. You know, Morgan Stanley's up 1%. Goldman Sachs is up 7%. Citi is up around 2%. So... I feel like the, the the main story here is like things are generally fine in the banking industry. First off, a lot of people say earnings 
are a shitty metric because they can be manipulated. And what a lot of CEOs of big companies do is when they feel for whatever reason, either they're new or they just want to get it out there or they want to smooth out their earnings, they create uh, reserve funds uh, that takes down profits. And then they will perhaps decide, oh, the banking crisis is in, Ar in Argentina isn't as bad as we thought. We're going to take that reserve fund down, that special reserve fund down or bad debt fund down and juice up our profits. And what CEOs are often accused of is managing earnings based on what's happening with them personally or their compensation or how they want to communicate to the market, or usually they do it to smooth things. So American Express was famous for this, that in really good quarters, they would create reserves for bad debt or something like that. And then in bad quarters, they would tap into those reserves and say, what do you know? Our, our bad charges aren't as much as we thought, so they put it back into the bottom line. They kind of manage earnings, if you will. And that's what it sounds like here, is that they were managing, that earnings, to your, to your point, and it's a good one, earnings don't tell the story here. And that's the lesson. You wanna look at gross margins, you wanna look at growth, you wanna look at top line growth, all of those things to get a full picture, because earnings are a really difficult way to get a read on a company, because the CEO can decide on the board to take big charges or to reincorporate reserve funds or whatever it might be. There's all sorts of tricks and things you can do to fool around with earnings. Yeah, and on the point of good corporate communication, um, I thought what City did, I'm actually gonna take the other side of Jane Fraser's in trouble. I think they've actually done really well here. And what the CFO did, this guy Mark Mason, is two days before the earnings release, he put out this blog post basically telling everyone this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this $1.5 billion transfer risk fund. We're going to also pay our FDIC fee. And then he had this, this, what I thought was a really good line at the bottom. He said, quote, as you've heard me say before, we are a bank for all seasons. Our ability to digest these charges and take reserves against potential future challenges is a testament to the strength and stability of our firm and how we continue to weather all types of market environments. That was two days before earnings. And then after this, what would appear to be awful earnings, the stock rose around 2%. So I think they've actually done a, a great job here. Oh my God, the student becomes the teacher. Boom! I think you're right. I, 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 cool. I take it back, I withdraw the statement. <laughs> I think Jane is, is doing a great job. We'll be right back after the break with a look at the do's and don'ts of firing people. Support for Prop G comes from NetSuite. Growth is an inevitable part of any great business, but with growth comes growing pains. Suddenly, the things you're used to doing a day are taking a week. But there are three numbers that can help you get the visibility and control that you need to make the right business decisions instantly. 37,025, one. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down expenses. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs and one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash profg. That's netsuite.com slash profg to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash profg.
Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code FOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Discover Careers. We're back with Profty Markets. A tech worker was fired last week. Not exactly breaking news. But while on her 50-minute call with Cloudflare's HR reps, that worker, Brittany Peach is her name, recorded the conversation and posted it to TikTok, where it quickly went viral. We have an important meeting today. We finished our evaluations of 2023 performance. This is where you have not met Cloudflare expectations for performance. We've decided to part ways with you. Yeah, I'm going to stop you right there. Sure. Um, so I started August 25th. I've been on a three month ramp and then it was three weeks of December and then a week of Christmas. And then here we are. Every single one-on-one I've had with my manager, every conversation I've had with him has, he has been giving me nothing but I am doing a great job. I have had great activity. I have really great meetings. So I disagree that my performance hasn't been, I haven't met performance expectations. I hear you. Um, also, you. why are you Fine. doing this and not my manager, not, you know, we've never met. So this seems a little odd that my manager has no idea that this has been happening and the director has no idea that this has been happening. So I'm just definitely confused. And um, yeah, I would love like an explanation that makes sense. We have a little context to that. So, um, just for clarification, you are not being singled out in this. Your peers are also being collectively um, assessed on performance. This is a collective collaboration for Cloudflare. So I just want to clarify that piece. I won't be able to add any kind of specifics on numbers or- Wait, yeah, no. Can you explain for me why Brittany Peach is getting let go? The I won't be able to go into specifics for numbers. Wait, why though? I just started, I've been working extremely hard. I really need an answer and an explanation as to why Brittany Peach is getting let go, not why Cloudflare decided to hire too many people and are now actually realizing that they can't afford this many people and they're letting that go. If that's the real answer, I would rather just you tell me that instead of making up some bullshit and telling me that right before I lose my job. 
from someone that I've never met before, if you can respect that. Yeah, I can totally respect that. And I don't think Dom or myself today is going to give you any clarity or answers. It's going to um, meet the expectations that you're communicating to us, Brittany. So I can't speak to. So am I getting let go for no reason? If you guys can't give me a reason. I'm happy to follow up with you separately to give you the data that was calibrated. Now, Scott, this story is a bit out of the box from what we usually cover, but you often talk about talent retention as a key strength of successful companies. The flip side of that, though, is, of course, layoffs. So as someone who's fired people, what would you say went right or wrong in this interaction? Well, first of all, I'd just like to point out I've hired a lot more people than I've fired, but I've probably hired it, I don't know, I would bet that I have personally hired 800 to 1,000 people and personally fired 50 to 100. And let me just say one of the reasons I don't want to start another company is probably half the time I was planning to let someone go. And I feel like if you've hired them, you have a responsibility and the CEO of a small company, you have a responsibility to be in the room when they're let go is it just is awful. I would always like come up with reasons to delay it a day. It's just awful. You're rocking their world no matter what you think. It just, it's, it's just not fun. It's something I really don't miss about managing people or a small company. Okay, so generally speaking, what you wanna do is you wanna get right to the point. You're being let go. And rather, what I usually do is rather, you know, you can kind of outline why in bullet points, but say rather than having a discussion, which we may or may not agree on about the why, I wanna immediately get to, what we're gonna do for you. And what I've always tried to do is fire sooner than you might think, you know, slow to hire, quick to fire, that way you can be as generous as possible. What I like to do in a small company, you can do, you can do this and it's probably not possible to a place like Cloudflare, is I would say to people, it's not working out, stay here as long as you need until you get another job. And let's talk again in a month or two months and tell me how your job search is going and let me know how I can be helpful. That's the way I like to let go of people. And you can do that in a small company that's profitable. And almost all of my companies have been those two things. Uh, in this instance, the fissure, if you will, or the inconsistency is they say she's being laid off for performance reasons. And yet they didn't bring any data around what those performance expectations were that she wasn't meeting. So she had absolutely every right to say, wait, you're letting me go for performance. I've been here three months. So why exactly am I being let go? And they immediately moved to, well, this isn't, you have not been singled out. Well, okay, that sounds like a layoff. And you didn't say it was a layoff. You said it was performance reasons. And finally, more than anything, I think you just wanna be human. I mean, they use language in there, like I, I, they just use weird language that they sound like lawyers built in a factory of lesser lawyers. They didn't know the situation. Also, if you bring someone into a meeting where you're letting them go and you're firing them for performance and they're surprised, it means you have fucked up. You absolutely, when someone is not performing, you have an obligation to tell them they're not performing and say to them, this is what you need to do or you risk being let go. Well, Cloud, uh, Cloudflare representative, after this whole thing blew up, they said, quote, Cloudflare did not conduct layoffs and is not engaged in a reduction of force. So they're basically doubling down on she was fired for cause, that is, for failing to meet performance metrics. And I feel like that's a, also a really important, important distinction because if you're fired for cause, you don't get severance. 
So she doesn't have to get paid. Well, hold on. There's a difference. There's a difference. Uh, being fired for cause, you basically have to commit a crime. Even if you're fired for not meeting performance, firing for cause, the, the hurdle is really high. I mean, it, it, it is very difficult to fire someone for cause. She can be let go for performance, but even, even if that's the case, she would be entirely entitled, and most companies, especially a company like Cloudflare, would have an obligation and a standard practice would pay her, would pay her severance. And also just generally, you don't, Cloudflare is a big, important company that wants to recruit people. It, 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 the best investment you can make is, or one of the best investments you can make, generally speaking, you want people to feel good about their experience even when it didn't work out. This is probably the single, that video is probably the single most brand damaging thing that has happened to Cloudflare in a long time. Because if you're a young person, a, all you do is watch TikTok because that's all you do. That's that's what I know, Ed. And two, you just don't have a great impression of going to work for Cloudflare right now. And then when they start hiring again, I bet it's going to be, I bet it's going to be a little bit harder. And the investment of paying people a little bit more so they they feel like, yeah, you know, they they fired me unfairly, but I got to give them this. They were generous with me. You got to give people that, especially if you're a company like Cloudflare and you have that kind of money. You don't go wrong being a little ex, you know, being a little bit more generous when people are on their way out the door, such that because every one of these people is either a brand ambassador or a brand destroyer out in the marketplace. So I, I look, they, there's a lot to learn here, and it's mostly a learning around what not to do. Let's take a look at the week ahead. We'll see earnings from Microsoft, Netflix, Tesla, Visa, and American Express. We'll also see fourth quarter GDP data and the personal consumption expenditures index for December. Do you have any predictions for us? So just as BlackRock has lost a lot of business and taken a lot of grief for its impact investing and focus on ESG, Bill Ackman is kind of becoming the face of the kind of anti-ESG. And I think that he's gonna lose some investors and come under some pressure uh, the first quarter that his fund underperforms the marketplace, I think people are going to accuse him of having taken his eye off the ball. And I think a lot of investors uh, who actually appreciate impact investment and DEI initiatives or are pissed off at the way he's handled this are going to very loudly and publicly withdraw or redeem from his fund. I think, I think we're going to start to hear from his investors about his activities. This episode was produced by Claire Miller and engineered by Benjamin Spencer. Our executive producers are Jason Stavers and Catherine Dillon. Neil Severo is our research lead and Drew Burrows is our technical director. Thank you for listening to Prop G Markets from the Box Media Podcast Network. Join us on Wednesday for office hours and we'll be back with a fresh take on markets every Monday. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? 
The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.